built environment is committed to change, has a huge capacity, capability to tackle the climate and biodiversity emergency. Hello everyone and welcome to FutureX, a podcast by Martin Hearn, Event Director, FutureBuild, and co-host Dr Oliver Jones, Research Director, Rider Architecture. FutureX will bring together some of the brightest minds and some of the most disruptive thinkers and innovators to transform the construction industry and build a FutureX community of like-minded people that can begin to make a real change. We really hope you enjoy the series. Hello. And welcome to episode two of the FutureX podcast. I'm Martin Hearn, event director at FutureBuild, and I'm really pleased to be here once again with Dr. Oliver Jones. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm really glad to be kicking off this second episode on the pathway to net zero with one of the authors from the latest construction sector net zero report built for the environment, which has recently been released. It's written by Maria Smith, head of sustainability at Bureau Happold, and a contributing author to this new report. The report's been released by the RIBA and Architects Declare. The amazing Maria Smith is a self-confessed, recovering architect, frustrated engineer, turned sustainability superstar. Cheers for joining us, Maria. A really good place for us to start today would be to hear a bit more about yourself. FutureX podcast is about bringing together a FutureX community. I think that's as much about people as it is about ideas. So it'd be great to hear a bit about how you've got to where you've got to and what your current role is. Sure. So, hi, thanks for having me. Um, so my name's Maria Smith. Um, my pronouns are they, them. And I am Director of Sustainability and Physics at Bureau Happold in our London office. Yeah, we're sort of engineers, consultants, advisors working across the built environment. Um, and I work as part of the sustainability and physics team, which is a really interesting and really cool sounding team because <laughs> we work on sustainability sort of at one end around sustainability strategies and sort of policy recommendations and research with cities and governments and so on. And then at the other end is some like fantastic, um, like really detailed, hardcore building physics engineering um, and sort of bringing that across all scales, all different kinds of projects. And it's just a really fantastic group of people that work across the company. And how did you get to this role? You know, what, what did you study? Where did you go to university? What? Well, I'm a recovering architect. Um, so I did architecture first and I used to work as a kind of artist and architect. Um, I ran a company called Studio Weave um, with my business partner then. And we did a lot of community engagement led projects and stories and narrative led projects instead of just trying to find alternative ways I think of like creating interesting spaces and creating different ways that people can interact with and change their environment the built environment and sort of the environment more broadly um, and a lot of stuff around yeah, making sure that all different kinds of people are involved in those conversations and those changes but I was always a bit of a frustrated engineer. I did like double maths and physics for my A-levels, so I don't know why I didn't do it sooner really. And I really wanted to be part of those conversations um, and felt that the sort of the divide between the architect's role and the engineer's role felt false and forced and frustrating to me. So I studied at the Open University, which I love and totally recommend for anybody who wants to retrain or sort of augment their education in any way it's just a fantastic institution that's like so flexible and it's brilliant so um thank you OU um and so then I did an engineering degree and started working much more with engineers I joined Web Yates engineers and we created Interabang 
um, which was a transdisciplinary architecture and engineering practice. We worked on lots of different kinds of projects, but really emphasizing uh, retrofit um, and working with existing buildings, which is really where that very, very close sort of crossover between what would traditionally be the architect's role and what would traditionally be the engineers, especially the structural engineers role, really kind of, yeah, there's a huge benefits there. And we did projects like the, um, the Hoover building out on the A40, which we converted after it had been derelict for 10 years, as well as a number of other projects. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's just this massive climate emergency thing. Um, and so, you know, as emphasizing that side of the work more and more and more over the years, um, getting involved with things like architects declare, construction declares, now built environment declares. And it was actually through that work that I met Mike Cook, who founded the engineers declare aspect of that family. He was working at Bureau Happold and yeah, we sort of started talking about like, well, how, you know, how we can make as big an impact as possible. And through a number of conversations that happened, um, I ended up working at Bureau Happold. And yeah, now I'm working on like really like strategic level, large scale things, which is really what I wanted to do. So it's, it's a good position for now, but I've had a slightly weird journey, I guess, to get here. Well, that sounds fantastic. So from recovering architect to frustrated engineer, brilliant. I suppose what we really want to talk to you today about is the new report that's come out. Yeah. Your involvement in that and really touching on some, some of its key recommendations. So do you want to tell us a bit about that report? Sure, yeah. So the report came out last Tuesday and it's called Built for the Environment. And it's been written with the RIBA and, and Architects Declare. Um, two governments at COP26 and the idea is it's, it's part of a wider project called the Built Environment Summit so there's a conference in the RIBA and online um, on the 28th and 29th of October and this project is something we've been working on for sort of almost a year now around trying to build confidence in the role of the built environment in tackling the climate and biodiversity emergency ahead of COP26. Like so how can we leverage this moment, COP26, being in Glasgow, the weight and role of the RBA, the incredible international networks of architects declare um, in order to do something useful. Um, and through a number of conversations with all sorts of people, we felt like there, there are kind of there are a couple of key things. And one of them is really showing to governments that the built environment is committed to change, has a huge capacity, capability to tackle the climate and biodiversity emergency. Um, that's changed like a lot over the last couple of years. So there's, I think there's, there's a lot to say about what we have, what we've done, what we've learned, the way in which we've like committed to working together across disciplines, across sectors, across the industry and so on. So this report is really about bringing together that evidence base and understanding that the built environment has a huge role to play, has a huge capability and capacity to make change and give confidence to governments across the world at sort of at this really, really important moment that yes, you can regulate us more around sort of environmental regulations. Um, and also these are the kinds of support infrastructure and sort of resources that we need from you, from governments in order to enable this change. And then so if we can work together, then you know we can really tackle this huge, huge problem. It's definitely something we've recognized and that there's this, exactly as you say, there's this increased capability and this almost this hunger to really get on and start experimenting and introduce new innovations that can really sort of push forward our sustainability goals and, and make that impact that you're talking about. You mentioned in the, in the report this idea about 
the built environment professionals needing to change the way that they work? Yeah, so I think, you know, we talked a little bit about my kind of background as, as one example of sort of the, the way that, you know, the traditional role of the different players in the built environment and, you know, going beyond that, the traditional like order in which you make decisions around, okay, so traditionally you would sort of, you'd have a genius idea, you'd draw that on a napkin, you'd work that up, and then eventually you would bring together the resources that you need in order to realise that idea. Um, and you know the architects would have a certain part of that and then the engineers would do certain things calcs and so on to make that happen and so on um, and that just doesn't really work with the um, environment that we're increasingly working in now you know if we're working in an environment where we have really really scarce resources where there are huge knock-on effects to every design decision that we make in terms of the kinds of materials that we might use or the kind of procurement route that we might um, employ or you know thinking about certain kinds of ideas of beauty and the kind of the the things that we might have historically thought of or been educated as good architecture or you know good design um, actually might have really really negative like unintended but negative consequences so we kind of have to rethink all of these things and we have to instead you know when you're starting a project rather than thinking about like a, I don't know what what might be the most kind of beautiful or um sensible or logical or rational or efficient or you know under the old kind of terms is now much more about like okay what have we got what buildings have we got what resources have we got what are the easiest and most fair and just ways that we can get hold of certain kinds of resources in order to you know meet these social needs and so that just that changes the order of decision making it changes who does what um, and it changes the kind of conversations that we need to have and I think the um, the industry is increasingly aware of this, increasingly having conversations about this. But obviously, it's a huge shift, um, and it changes like our very like you know the, those things that we've come to feel as like oh that's beautiful, that's a wonderful building, and and we feel that really deeply because of all of this sort of stuff that we've internalized, and that that's starting to change. So it's really kind of it's exciting and it's a challenge and it's an exciting design challenge, but it's also quite unsettling. I think that's that's a really good point you make around the design challenge because in and I agree with you around this death of the heroic architect and the 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 one genius that's scribbling things on a on a napkin that then become reality. I think it's much more now about intelligently dealing with uh, with with more constraints. You know, you've mentioned those constraints and and actually there's there's I think there's a real functional beauty in that as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, you know, if you look at, I mean, anything like ideas of beauty around, you know, humans or artwork or you know, like anything that changes over time, it changes based on the context in which you're working. And that kind of clever, intelligent kind of um, response to conditions that, you know, you, you meet or, you know, finding interesting ways around certain constraints or whatever. Um, that's what impacts those ideas of beauty. Um, and that's what's that's changing. It's changing really quickly now. I, I find that really fascinating. But I think it's also, yeah, it's it's kind of confronting, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 challenging not just for the projects, but as you say, for us as professionals to to get to grips with it. I think you know, it, just staying on the subject of of how how the construction sector professionals need to change the way that we work. You know, you've mentioned that we need to respond more intelligently to these challenges. We need to understand the resources that exist on sites as they are and, and how we can reuse them. And, uh, you know, I suppose that extends all the way through to design for disassembly and thinking about buildings over a much longer lifespan. But 
are there any other sort of specific pointers that you might throw out there as to to how we might need to change our practice yeah so i think a, a big one is around embodied impacts and over the last couple of years we've had an increasingly sort of rich and sophisticated conversation about embodied carbon um, and obviously one of the really important recommendations in the report is how to regulate embodied carbon to really embed embodied carbon within all of our design decisions and so on and the industry has come leaps and bounds um, in, in tackling that um, but I think kind of going beyond that it's it's also thinking about what what does that open the door to because embodied carbon is actually a really radical concept when you think about it it's like it's not just about the impacts within the red line of the site but it's about the impacts remote from the site and that the decisions that you make now within you know, something that is maybe, you know, quite local, actually have huge impacts, like the other side of the world, knock-on impacts. And I think that thinking about that in terms of carbon is absolutely brilliant, but we should be thinking about that in terms of loads of other things as well. Like, you know, what about the, uh, the air pollution impacts to manufacturing certain kinds of materials? The kind of, you know, impacts in terms of habitat and species loss, impacts in terms of water cycles and nutrient cycles and soil and food security and so on that we have. And I think central to the shift is this like idea of thinking using systems thinking to exactly. recognize that when we make a decision that has loads and loads of different kinds of impacts and so we need to understand the built environment as a really complex system and I think all of us that work within it you know understand it's a really complex system it's really networks there's all kinds of different ways of like interacting with it uh, but I, I just I'm so excited about the way that embodied carbon has become more, more mainstream because I think it opens the door to thinking about all kinds of embodied impacts yeah much more just yeah and, and it's not just thinking about the built environment as a system of systems I think you know we spoke about this in our in our first episode around thinking about the planet as a as a system of systems and and the way that all of our actions in one space as you've as you've so well articulated our actions as professionals have much more impact now or we're aware of much more of the impact of our actions much more and and i think there's an incumbent responsibility the likes of which we haven't really come to terms with in the past now upon the way the materials that we're specifying the methods of uh, construction that we're choosing to use etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah completely and it's it's obviously it's environmental but it's also social you know can we start thinking about embodied social value you know in Fashion, for example, is thinking so much more about like, okay, well, maybe I'd buy this t-shirt, maybe I'd buy this t-shirt, and the social impacts of these two different t-shirts are huge, mm. and we need to start having that conversation much more in architecture and built environment as well. I totally, totally agree. So part of this report is, is as you say, is aimed at those governments that are coming to COP26 and the government leaders, and you, you mentioned in the report the, this idea around national transition plans and national roadmaps. Could you just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of, the, one of the key points that has come out of the, the research and the writing of this report is that is around the role of governments. Um, and I think we, we think about the role of governments in terms of regulating the built environment, sort of like, you know, planning rules and building codes and building standards and so on, and um, things that kind of create minimum standards. But I think the other thing, if we're acknowledging that we're working within a system, systems of systems that all kind of interact and the kind of huge complexities of like trade negotiations and everything that all impact the built environment then there's another really important role of governments which is around creating infrastructure and I mean that in like the really broadest sense in terms of 
thinking about, okay, this is how things work together. These are the relationships between different things. These are the ways in which we can sort of make certain interactions easier and certain interactions maybe more difficult and so on. And it, governments are in a, in a, in a sort of a position to do that because of the way that we can create strategies and roadmaps and um, think sort of cross-sectorally. Um, and so I think one of the key messages of the report is like, yes, we, we need regulations, we need good regulations and policy and so on, but we also need to have really well-resourced infrastructure. And, you know, yes, that means things like public transport infrastructure and things like that, and, you know, water and those kinds of pieces of infrastructure. But also when we start thinking about, you know, for example, the infrastructure for a circular economy, that might just be like a network of builders yards, or that might be ways for recording, you know, what what, what um what materials and products and so on are in loads and loads of different um, buildings uh, on the idea of those national uh, national transition plans and the roadmaps like you mentioned and, and you've spoken you know very well about how there's a necessity to sort of map the resources that we've got out there you know we need to understand those ecosystems really well uh, particularly when we're trying to support things like a growing circular economy or a, a, a green tech or a clean tech economy and all, all of the other names for, for this these emerging economies around the sustainable future. Um, I guess what's, what's really important is that a lot of these things already exist and it's actually how do we use maybe data and, and some of the existing processes that we understand as an industry to to, to get some easy wins about how to connect people, how to collaborate more with these uh, with these individuals and these businesses, but also how to support these developing supply chains. Yeah, no, and, and thank you for saying that. I think that's such an important message as well. It's like so much already exists, so much technology, so many resources, so much exists. And it's just that we need to use it and leverage it and work together to connect the different elements of the system um, I think it's a really important message that we're not sitting around waiting for some kind of breakthrough technology and then we're going to be able to solve climate change. This yeah. is much more about that we need to work together differently in order to leverage the stuff that we have, the tools that we have, the skills and so on, um, in order to tackle this problem. And I think that's really, really important. And that's a really key part of this, this systems thinking and this point about roadmaps as well as that it's about finding ways to communicate and to connect um, all of these different Elements. I mean, you know, for example, thinking about like who owns all of the buildings and owns all of the land uh, or like who controls different aspects of the built environment. And unless we have a more sort of open and uh, yeah, like uh, shared access to a lot of information around what, what assets we do collectively have at our disposal, um, then it's going to be much more difficult to um, tackle this challenge. Mm -hmm. and, and on the topic of things, you know, lots of things already exist, and I suppose this is the advent of another report. Um, we've had things from the UK Green Building Council, we've had things from Letty. Um, there's loads of really active pioneers in this space at the minute. So what sets, what sets this report apart from those others? Well, look, we're not we're not trying to compete with any of the other reports. This is a lovely family of reports that are all coming out now, and I think, you know, we... Uh, Personally, I've been involved with the UK GBC's route map that's also coming to COP. Um, there's stuff coming out of the World Green Building Council, for example, around the, um, um, the business case for net zero and so on. There's loads of really important reports that are coming out now. Um, this particular report is about speaking to that 
the capability of the built environment in order to tackle the challenges. It's about this point around systems thinking and connecting the existing resources that we have around the role of governments to help sort of resource and connect all of these different assets that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think something that's probably kind of a bit more unusual about this report is our approach to having a collective voice from the built environment. So we had an open call for evidence. Um, we also had an open call for experts who were sifting through the evidence. So this has been a, sort of a very like open process to try and bring in as many different kinds of references as possible. And we have, you know, almost 300 different references from all over the world. And now once we've published the report, we're inviting endorsements from all over the world, all over the built environment industry as well, because, you know, what will make this really strong is that if we go to governments and say, you know, th these are the things that we can do, these are the things that we need, and these are all of the people that are sort of putting their voices behind that. Um, and I think that maybe is a little bit more unusual about this report and hopefully will make it powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And I thought you can see, you know, just from having having a look through the report over the last couple of days since it's been out, you, you can see that there is a wealth of knowledge that's been contributed from different companies across the world and that it does have a different tone to it. You know, it has a tone, like you say, of a collective of practicing professionals who are, are really showing their capability in being able to address some of these key challenges around climate change and the climate emergency. And I think it's the construction industry is often targeted and has a lot of stereotypes leveled at it around uh, being slow to adopt, being slow to move, slow to change, like generally around being slow um, and being siloed. And I think that what's really encouraging and enthusing about this report is that it does show that there's a lot of people pioneering and experimenting and innovating out there around climate change and the climate emergency. Yeah, there's a huge amount of energy in the industry around change. There's a whole chapter in the report that is about the ways in which we're committed to change, the ways in which we've created different kinds of groups, cross-sectoral, cross-disciplinary groups that are about sharing information and figuring out how you know best to move forward. Um, and I, I think that's that's part of what this report is about, is to to show you know every everybody who maybe has certain preconceptions about the industry that you know probably aren't entirely unfair. But um, actually, we, you know, we've heard those. We've heard those criticisms. We understand the context that we're in now. We know we need to change as an industry. We are changing as an industry and that we can, you know, we can do our bit. Mm -hmm. And it's a call to action from governments to recognise that and support that. Absolutely. Excellent. For me, I, I love it that each section of the report has a very clear list of recommendations. And I think one of the points around this is the need for knowledge and skills. And I think we've got a real challenge especially in the architectural community where 75% of architectural practices are 10 people um, and under and about half or only, you know, a, a five, you know, how do we support, you know, the smaller practices to have the skills and knowledge necessary to take some of these actions forward? I mean, that's, that's true. But also if we look at success, for example, of ACAN, Architects Climate Action Network, which is a network that's, you know, made up of individuals and they run these events around loads of different themes in order to share knowledge and get like hundreds, even thousands of people coming to share knowledge at these events. Like the, the willingness is there. And, you know, ACAN started in the UK, but now they've got various chapters all over the world. And so on. like there's there's a huge amount of of willing to share information across practices. And so I think, you know, yeah, it's there are lots of people who are 
operating in small businesses, that's that's fine so long as we're sharing that information yeah. across the industry and and globally. Something that's really close to to my heart clearly is research and innovation, and I'd just love to hear a bit from you about the role that you think research and innovation could play, you know, in us reaching a more sustainable future. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the points that you already made around um, we have loads of stuff and it's about how to reconfigure it or change the way that we can access it or change the way that different people are maybe able to communicate with each other and so on. So I think a lot of research and innovation is actually around communication and sharing. Um, And, you know, the more that the climate continues to change, then the more that we're going to have to adapt really, really quickly, the solutions that we have to, you know, how to make our habitats safe um, and sustainable, you know, is going to change more and more and more quickly. So the more we can make sure that we have platforms for sharing that information, sharing it at a sort of quite technical level, that's that's going to be really, really important. And I think that that's it's already changing and it's sort of going to continue to change. Um, I think there's a lot around climate adaptation that, that needs further research and innovation. And that's um, something that we pointed out in the report as well, that, you know, of course, mitigation is really, really, really important. We have to keep doing that. But absolutely hand in hand, we need to be thinking about how we're going to be adapting to the climate that is increasingly changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, there's a lot still, there's a lot of research that still needs to happen there. Um, and I think just those like good relationships between academia, between research that's embedded within practice, between different kinds of funders. Like, again, it's that cross-disciplinary collaboration that's really central. Yeah. I think what comes across in the report as well, and this is something that we've spoken about relatively recently, and I'm not one for redefining and redefining and redefining things, but this conversation around regenerative architecture and the fact that to some, I suppose, sustainability could mean doing the least harm. There's almost a reductionist approach to sustainability, or there has been for quite some time in, in the construction sector. How do we do less harm? How do we create less emissions how do we create less carbon but what I like about the report is it starts to point towards uh, how do we do more good and how do we enable a more regenerative architecture and and how does our how does our sector enable uh, economic and social regeneration and and all of those other positives yeah I mean there's no reason we shouldn't be setting our sights really high that we spend what like 98 percent of our time in buildings and sort of close to 100 percent in the built environment it's a huge indicator of our sort of societal success. It has a huge role to play. We should not be like selling ourselves short in terms of what we have the capability to do. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, thinking about how can we make the maximum positive impact rather than just somehow, maybe it's almost defeatist to think like, well, we're going to do something awful. So let's just try and not make it too awful. Like that's not going to get anyone out of bed in the morning. And so we have to kind of maintain this. Like, and it's obviously it's so difficult and it's a struggle and we have to think about so many different kinds of things. But, you know, like the, the conversation around health and well-being and social value over the last couple of years has really, really shifted this as well and, th- and really connecting the, the social crises and environmental crises together as well and realising this is all one big kind of interconnected challenge that we can, we can tackle with the same tools. I think it goes, goes back to that systems point that you were making earlier. Exactly, yeah, everything is connected. Yeah. <laughs> and the, we're going to start to sound like conspiracy theorists. <laughs> uh, the, so I think one of the things as well, I, I mean, 
the next thing I've got here to ask you is around what you would like to see happen next. I suppose other than everyone going to the RIBA website and downloading the Built for Environment uh, report, what, you know, what, what, what can people do next, do you think? Yeah, I mean, in the short term, please do go to the RIBA website and uh, download the Built for the Environment report and then endorse it. Please endorse it. Tell all your friends that you've endorsed it. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, the, the more voices that we can get behind this to governments, then the more powerful the, the messages that are in this report can be and then I think the main it, it goes back to the systems thinking thing as well but because I think sometimes when I feel like okay we have to change the whole system well that's just too overwhelming I guess I'll go back to bed but actually I think also within the systems thinking point is a clue to what we need to do which is around the way we communicate with each other so I think you know if I'm going to give one single thing say what can you do it's like probably join a group join some group, make sure it's as cross-disciplinary as cross, you know, um, cross-industry, cross-sectoral, international as possible, but, you know, something that is dealing with the, the interfaces between our different silos and together thinking about, like, okay, how do we understand this, how things are working now and how can we make changes? Um, and there are so, like, there are so many groups that have come up. If there isn't one way you are, start one, you'll be a hero. Yeah. Um, and just keep talking to each other because then we can really we can if we replicate all of those like conversations and shifts then we will make change we are continuing to make change join the future x community sure absolutely <laughs> we're looking to engage people from all of the sectors as well who are facing all of the same challenges that you've mentioned in in fashion and other sectors and and how do we learn from those and how do we engage with scientists and people who aren't really usually typically in construction and what can we learn from them along the way and I totally agree with you one of the biggest things and one of the biggest challenges that we face at the moment is communication and, and sharing knowledge and I think what's really encouraging about this report is that it is evidence of what can be achieved with a really dedicated collective and it is evidence of the capability of the built environment and the ongoing capabilities of the built environment sector to be able to address the climate emergency. In terms of yourself, what would you say the, the headlines of this are? You know, if we're, if we're going to wrap on promoting this report, what, what should people take away? So the report is about 70 odd pages long. There are over 70 policy recommendations in there. It's like, as I said, nearly 300 case studies. There's a lot in there. That's brilliant. But there's also really nice page near the beginning which is just 10 principles for a transition to a fair and sustainable built environment um, and so I suppose those are the those are the kind of the key themes that run through the whole report and that um, have become a bit of a like personal manifesto for me as well like thinking about like okay what am I going to do next well let's I can go back to these 10 principles that have come out of this piece of research and yeah the first one is about the systems thinking the second one is about the role of governments, as we've talked about, you know, it's not only regulation, but it's also about infrastructure and resources and support. Three is about environmental targets being science-based and fair. And there's a really important recommendation within this report that is common with some other reports as well, um, from work from C40 Cities, for example, around reporting emissions on a consumption basis. It's really boring as a conversation in some ways to talk about like exactly how we're reporting emissions, but consumption-based emissions reporting is a really is a paradigm shift in terms of international justice so um maybe we don't have time to get into it now but i wanted to name check it because it's a really really important recommendation for the report but essentially it's about targets being science-based and fair we need to achieve absolute emissions reductions not only relative emissions reductions it's not about just 
fewer, you know, tons of carbon dioxide emitted into the atmosphere per square meter of building. We need to absolutely reduce the emissions um, associated with our buildings. Um, and then maybe just a couple of others that I'll pick out. One is that this is not only about carbon. And we talked about this as well, like, but it's carbon is really important, but there are so many other environmental indicators that are really important. Um, and then maybe the last one I'll just pick up is this around social justice must be at the heart of everything. The social and environmental sustainability arguments are so interlinked. Um, and that, yeah, these need to be at the heart of everything we do. Absolutely. I think that's an absolutely amazing run through of, of that high level executive summary of the report. Maria, thank you. We always end on asking our guests, you know, the tagline for Future X is our future is yet to be determined. And what's your vision of the future? You know, what what would you like to see for the future of the planet and the future of the sector? It's a, it's a pretty big question, but. So I was thinking about this and it's it's a really good question. Um, I knew you were going to ask it, um, but I think I think the key is that we're not trying to work to like some static future that is just a different kind of place and it's just about a journey for how to get there um so I don't want to give like a vision of a perfect future there's different things I could say around that perhaps you know but I think the the important thing is around embracing change like and that goes from kind of acknowledging climate change to acknowledging and embracing the fact that we have to change the way that we do things and that's only going to accelerate so I think embracing that changes to the kind of reality that we live in and that working together collaboratively um, and fairly collectively to tackle that change and affect that change is what's going to make kind of that's what's going to color the future and that's you know if we embrace that change then we're going to have uh, yeah a good life in the future that's a great note to end on is around just embracing change because things are changing pretty fast So Oliver, tell me about some of the highlights uh, from your conversation. Oh, where do I start? You know, we touch on the death of the heroic architect of the movement towards working more collaboratively and, and how we might increasingly recognise beautiful buildings in terms of intelligent solutions to complex problems. You know, valuing this attribute much more than just the visual appearance of our buildings. And Maria goes into 10 key principles to the report and which overwhelmingly support this shift towards systems thinking and understanding the built environment as an increasingly complex system, which totally echoes our conversations in the first episode of the Future S podcast around understanding our planet as a system of systems. Um, and the report as well, it embeds embodied carbon calculations from really early on in projects and promotes them from a really early stage. And recognizes that decisions made on our projects often have a huge impact across the world, down through supply chains on biodiversity, on water quality, air quality, and, and indeed quality of life. So promoting the notion of, of measuring and em, embodied social value of materials and products, which is something that Maria spoke about so well. And it really, really lit me up, that notion of embodied social value. I really enjoyed talking to Maria um, in this one, Oliver. And, and I think it came at a really timely point as well where Greta Thunberg came out and said, or did her speech, blah, 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 blah. And it was really a sort of a call to action on leadership to come out with tangible recommendations. And I think this report absolutely does that. 
Oh, without doubt, Martin. You know, they've written a new report built for the environment and it's aimed at governments and government leaders attending COP26. And it's intended to build confidence in the built environment sector and its capacity to deliver a net zero future. Now, the report's actually part of a wider project called the Built Environment Summit, which is an online conference that's taking place on the 28th and 29th of October. And as you've said, in response to Greta's blah, blah, blah comment, this report's so exciting because it's, it also includes loads of case studies. And the whole purpose of it is to show that as a sector, we have the capability and we can deliver net zero. Um, what's really important though is about how do we all get involved? What do we do next? And I think what's something really important about this report is about sharing its findings. Um, and they're also asking you to endorse it. So please go over to architecture.com, uh, download the report, endorse it as well, and just share and get this information out there. I think that's such an important reason why we're doing this and this is what Future X stands for. Um, Oliver, you mentioned at the start that this is actually going to be a series of podcasts all looking at the pathway to net zero. What have we got coming up in episode three? Oh, it is indeed, Martin. Join us next episode when we'll be talking to Manish Datta, the director of UKGBC and early net zero pioneer who was actually instrumental and way before his time in enabling Marks and Spencer to reach carbon neutrality in their business operations. It's an absolutely fantastic interview uh, and I'm really looking forward to bringing it to this audience. And then what have we got after that? Can we give a sneak peek of, of, uh, of our... Sneak, sneak peek on uh, episode four here. We've got Bill Dunster, uh, early, early advocate of net zero and an absolute pioneering legend in terms of sustainability. Uh, and we have a fantastic conversation with Bill. And I, I also can't wait to bring that to the Future X audience. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, these will be coming out over the coming weeks. Um, thank you again for listening. Um, and if you like it, subscribe and share. Join our community to stay up to date with all things FutureX. Visit futurebuild.co.uk to sign up. Please also like them and share them to help grow our community. You can subscribe to the podcasts within your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you'll be back again soon.